I'm your host Helen Douthwaite Teasdale and welcome to Brass Evolution, a show where we explore the rich culture and history of the brass band and world. This episode, I chat to researcher and relative of Cora Youngblood Corson, James P. Gregory Jr., about her trailblazing and complex life and his ongoing discoveries into her significance in opening doors for women brass musicians. Well, welcome, James, to the podcast. It's so nice to have you on. James, tell us where you're coming from today and a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, at the moment, I am in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, but I just accepted a position, I guess, last year uh, in June to be the director of the LSU Military Museum. So I'm at Louisiana State University, but I'm from Oklahoma. It's where I grew up, spent my whole life. And I've always been interested in history and as a historian, and as I've been uh, working, I'm currently a PhD candidate, and my dissertation, of course, is on my great aunt, Cora Youngblood Corson. Uh, so I've recently been diving into musical history. Are you a musician yourself, James? I was. I mean, I did band in middle school and high school. I played the trombone and euphonium. I have my great-great-grandmother's trombone mouthpiece. She was in Cora's band. Uh, so this is her mouthpiece to her trombone when she was performing with Cora. Wow. Should that not be in a museum, do we think, or something? Only <laughs> should. Uh, I know her trombone still exists. A cousin in Florida has it. Uh, so the trombone does yeah. still exist, but I've got a mouthpiece. So so we need to try and connect the two, right? We need we to. Need that uh, mouthpiece in... Well, because she, she used... Her daughter then used it in school, and then her granddaughter right, used okay. it. So they've, they've held on to it. I've been trying to get it, but... Yeah. These things happen. It's great that we've got both. James... Obviously, you're related to Cora. How did you mm. come about starting your research into her? Well, um, admittedly, my research is military history, and that's my specialty. When I went to the University of Oklahoma for my PhD, they had to have me you know, pick a field, so I chose Native American history, and I was writing on Native Americans in World War One, And so that was it. I had no idea about Cora growing up. I mean, I'd, I'd never heard of her. And so it was probably four years ago or so, I was just looking for family history one day. And as I'm flipping through this uh, genealogy we had, I come across these three or four pages of Cora Youngblood Corson and a photo of her, you know, in a, a uniform performing for President Wilson in World War One. And I was thinking, well, who is this? And my family said, oh, well, that's, you know, that's Cora. And so then I called my my grandmother and I said, hey who's this? And I, the doors just started to open up from there. So it was this, and again, I, I kind of felt a little, you know, my family has this really unique history in the state of Oklahoma and no one had told me yet. I was the only historian in the family. I mean, you got Cora, who's a celebrity from a state and an uncle who's the youngest representative of the state. And, you know, the family's intertwined all over, but no one told me. So it was a, it was a, accidental genealogy discovery uh, that led me on this path. Sometimes it's just purely by accident that we come mm -hmm. across these things and then it just leads us delving down a black hole of research. But it's so surprising that nobody in the family sort of mentioned it, right? No, no one said a word. And, and like I said, I was in band and I knew my, my parents had been in band. It's on my, my dad's side. So it's like I played trombone and I was fairly good at it. Um, my dad played trumpet. I think my grandmother played music. My great grandmother, who I knew until she passed away when I was like 10, you know, I knew she was a singer and she played instruments, but that was it. 
no one had mentioned that, you know, by the way, your aunt and your grandmother were two of the most famous women musicians in the world at one time. Uh, so I just knew we were apparently a musical family, not that there was such a rich history behind it. It seems Cora is very enterprising from a very young age. Can you give us sort of the origin story of Cora? Where, where did this all start for her? Sure. Um, well, and I can take this to point out, there are a few things out there that if they're not written by me, don't trust them. Um, and I think it's it's part of the, it's not the author's fault. It's really the newspapers and Cora's fault because as her career just kind of spiraled. And so there's so many stories of her age and you know things like that. So the the short of it is Cora was born in Republic, Missouri. And that's where her father, my great, great grandfather, or great, whatever it is. I'm just going to say grandfather, but you know, it's like four generations back. He owned a business there. And in 1901, which I think puts Cora at 14, so there's some accounts that say she grew up in Oklahoma. She didn't. She was 14 when she moved to Oklahoma in 1901. But about 1902, 1903, she decided to get into music. Now, prior to this, I couldn't find any evidence of her getting into music. I know her grandfather taught music in town. Um, he was a Civil War veteran, and so he taught music to the the locals in Republic. So it must be from him, but... Cora originally was going to school to be a milliner, you know, to make women's hats. So she moves to uh, Anadarko, Oklahoma, uh, about the age of 14. And then within a year or two, she decides she wants to start a band. And so she starts the first band in Anadarko, uh, the Anadarko Women's Cornet Band. And then two months later, her dad, my grandfather, decides he wants to do a band too. So he creates a band. And if you go to Anadarko, you go in the museum, you'll find a, the picture of my grandfather and his band that says Anadarko's first band. But that's not true. Cora beat him by two months. So uh, about the age of 15, uh, she started creating a band there in town and started to travel, you know, locally performing. Just so interesting that like up until the age of 14, we can't sort of see any sort of musical inclinations it's all a guess i'm sure she probably did considering her grandfather was teaching music and her sisters learned music i mean they all did music but there's no inclination of anything bigger so it seems like all of a sudden this is what she wants to do i mean radical life choice but you know yeah. it, it paid off can we expand a little bit on her rise to fame? So she's widely considered as one of the first women to appear as a professional euphonium soloist. How do we get to that point from starting the sort of town band? Uh, so that's a great question. By the end of her career, I think I've got her up to like 12 different instruments she's playing and winning awards on. So I, it's it's wild. So in Anadarko, she starts in the cornet. And so she starts with the cornet band. And then in 1904, the World's Fair occurs in Missouri. And by a string of luck, um, some women from Guthrie and Lawton and Edmond were supposed to get together and go perform there. Well, I guess some of the girls from Edmond got sick. And so they were scrambling. And then Cora and a couple of her girls were allowed to go with them. So Cora travels to 1904 and plays cornet. All right. And then she comes home. And the story is, I can't prove it. And I, I hate to write things I can't prove. But the story really is, that perhaps she got the attention or something with uh, Helen May Butler and her band because uh, they were performing there too. But either way, within the next two years, Cora is signed to perform with the Helen May Butler band as a baritone player. 
So I, I don't know what happened in between, but she within two years, she's on the baritone and outperforming everyone in the in Helen May Butler's band. She ends up very quickly becoming the lead, uh, getting solos. And then even within six months, her name appears before Helen May Butler's in the advertisements. So this is on, on, on you know, baritone. And then in those two years, around 1904 to 1907, she plays the euphonium and she decides in 07 to break into vaudeville. And uh, part of that story is Helen May Butler's husband was her manager. And then all of a sudden he divorces Helen May Butler and becomes Cora's manager and then runs off with Cora. So Cora now ends up into a vaudeville career and she's playing the euphonium and that's become her big thing. And, and everyone's talking about her as, you know, the world's greatest euphonium musician. So early in vaudeville, she's euphonium. That's her solos. Uh, in fact, and I know you saw in the article that in 1909, she acquired this euphonium from Khan that had 76 rubies and emeralds and, you know, 15 diamonds all over it. I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful euphonium just covered in jewels, which is $10,000 in 1909, which is a kind of equivalent of 300000 today. So she's obviously huge on the euphonium. And then two years later, about, you know, let's say 1910, I think her performance is getting a little stale. So she always changes things up. And every time she changes something up, it's add a new instrument. So then she added the tuba and became the the first woman to solo professionally the tuba. Uh, and and she plays, She the, the articles are how great she is. She's better than any man on the tuba. There's articles about how they attribute her growing up in Oklahoma and on the Western Plains to her larger lung size and uh, how she would tell everyone how strong of a woman she is for playing low brass. And uh, as her career continued, she added more instruments, uh, saxophone, trumpets, trombone. Uh, she played the bagpipes and won a lot of awards for bagpipes for a while, you know, all sorts of weird things. But one thing that remained constant was the tuba. And so she, while she did start with the euphonium, the tuba became like what's significant about Cora because she just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger tubas. In fact, they had to custom make her, they called them corsinophones for a bit. And she just kept getting larger and larger bells so that when she performed, she was performing the largest tuba in the world. Obviously, it's not the the massive one. I remember what it's called, the one that's absolutely giant that is technically the largest. But she would increase the size of her bell. So everyone would talk about this skinny woman playing a massive tuba on stage uh, and playing it very, very well. So I, I don't know the reasoning. I'm always just saying that the idea was to change the appeal of her uh, shows and adding instruments and having bigger and bigger things seemed to always reinvigorate the news to talk about her. But she just obviously was um, naturally gifted and could take up any instrument very easily. Yeah, I was going to say she must have had some incredible chops to go from Hornet to like the biggest tuba in the world. In and she also too. sang. <laughs> that was the other thing too. Uh, she was an alto, so she sang uh, and her performances. So she was not only doing the music, she was also doing solos by singing. It's unbelievable, really, the sort of variety that she was bringing to our acts. Um, oh. We touched a little bit on her relationship with CG Con and the endorsements mm -hmm. of that. Could we just talk about a little bit more? Obviously, we had the jewel-encrusted euphonium, oh, yeah. the blingest euphonium in the world. 
did it serve both parties this little endorsement so uh, that's a great question of course you may know the con factory burned down like twice and so most of the records from con are gone so it's impossible to really say and in fact the postcard i have of the photo of the euphonium is the only record like documentation of this i've got photos of cora holding it but this is the only one that says like cg con made this and it's dated on the back because she mailed it which is why i know it's 1909 but I don't know the relationship. I, what I do know is as she started getting bigger, so let's just say 1909 is when it started, her association with Khan, uh, she becomes the most frequently used woman in Khan advertisements, um, bar none. You'll find pages and pages and pages of men and then Cora, always Cora, always there with the tubas or the euphoniums. And for the next 20 years, it's not a, a, a fleeting thing. For 20 years, she remained the most commonly seen woman in con advertisements and as far as like a sponsorship i mean they didn't really do anything major until the late 20s uh that's when they actually brought her to like do postcards for con advertisements and they had her play their like 50th anniversary tuba for some events uh before that though they were obviously supplying her with instruments because every time they was mentioned in the papers, it's, oh, they all use con, you know, uh, or, you know, the joke, they're all, they're all con artists. But she obviously had some agreement with them, but I don't know uh, the details of what that agreement was. So I would assume and I'd say it's a sponsorship, but con is not sponsored on anything. She's just exclusively using con instruments. Wouldn't it be fascinating to see if we could find the paperwork somewhere in the annals of time? But we know, yeah, like you say, maybe lost now. Just due to Well, it's hard to find it. anything. And I came across this, I don't remember if it was on a, a Facebook page with Khan, but it was a, I knew in 1905, or I'm sorry, 1915 during the World's Fair at Panama Exposition, the state of Oklahoma celebrated Cora Youngblood Corson Day. But I found in a paper that the day before, June 5th, C.G. Khan celebrated Cora Youngblood Corson Day at their exposition at the fair. And I can't find, you know, I couldn't find any photos. I couldn't find any documents about this except for this one obscure article. And someone posted a photo from a booklet from the fair that showed the C.G. Khan building. And it's from afar. You can't really make out anything. But I, I, I took that scan and I zoomed in as far as I could. And I saw right on the front door in the front window, there's this long image. And without a doubt, it's Cora's uh, advertisement she did because I have an original yard long of this advertisement. And it's 100% Cora. So Cora's face was plastered on the front of CG Khan's uh, exposition at the fair. So obviously she's done something right with them. But... I, yeah, I, if only we could find the paperwork, but the only thing I have is these postcards and whatever I can piece together from news articles. I mean, the fact that you have that by itself is amazing. It's just like incredible to think that, you know, probably the, the biggest manufacturer of instruments in the world at that time, in especially in the US, had a woman soloist performer on their stand at the World Fair. Yeah, why don't I mean, we know it's, about more about this. <laughs> you, and that's the that's always been my kicker is why don't we know more about Cora? Why didn't I know about Cora? You know, and and in fact, so starting it, there's nothing written on her. The few things that are out there are wrong, and the one website is a genealogy my great grandmother did, which is all wrong. So I had to like piece it together. She had no kids, 
So it was, I had to crawl through my great grandmother's decrepit house. I mean, like the ceilings caved in, there's a family of raccoons living in the couch. I had to like crawl through this nasty house to get to the back room to find my grandmother's photo albums. And then I found a few photos of Cora later in life. And then I had to call cousins I have never spoken to in my life and say, hey, this is who I am. Do you have anything of our aunts? And though that most of them said, actually, I do. And so one of them sent me my grandmother. So my great great grandmother, Mae McBride, joined Cora's band in 1912. And then in 1917, married Cora's brother, my grandfather. So my grandmother was in the band with Cora for a while. So they sent me my grandmother's photo albums. And in it were all hundreds of photos of Cora and the band touring across the country from 1912 to 1917. And that's where I found that postcard of the of the item. And then they would say, well, call cousin so-and-so, call so-and-so, call another cousin. Oh, I have our grandmother's trunk. Well, I get the trunk and in the bottom of this trunk filled with dirt daubers and all sorts of horrible things are three of Cora's dresses that are sitting in the bottom of this, including uh, one that she wore when performing for President Coolidge. So I find these and then I contact another family member and, you know, I, slowly I've accumulated a very large collection and then I contacted families of the women that were in her band and they sent me stuff and so I have this amazing archive now but it's taken years to reach out to the farthest corners of the world and hope for some obscure piece of paper and what's really disappointing is the only document I have written by Cora besides a you know postcard is her divorce letter to her ex-husband saying I'm divorcing you that's the only handwritten document I have from Cora. There will be others out there. We will find them. Don't worry. <laughs> Actually, as of like two months ago, I'm down here in Louisiana and I get a phone call at work. And it's a cousin from my grandmother, great-great-grandmother's sister. And apparently they, he, once his mom passed away, he went through the house and found five portraits of Cora and the girls that I had never seen before. And he saw my uh, presentation on YouTube, so he mailed them all to me. So now I have five more photos that just popped up of Cora. Can we talk about Cora's membership of the White Rats? Obviously, yes. she was a long-standing performer. So do you think this sort of added to maybe the why we don't know much about her, a little bit of controversial? I think so. Um, at least in my research, it is. Um, I mean, she is. She's huge. And arguably, as I'm putting in my dissertation, she's the first celebrity from the state of Oklahoma. I mean, we all know Will Rogers, but she's pre Will Rogers. So she's huge and she's performing in all the major theaters. She's on all the major magazine covers, you know, Billboard, Variety, Vanity Fair. They all frequently use Cora's face on the cover. Uh, so she's huge for her time. She sells out. She even broke records performing for like 200 weeks straight of always sold out. I mean, she was breaking records all over the place. And it goes all the way up until 1915. And like her career is at its height. And then she starts getting into problems. And those problems are with the Vaudeville Managers Protection Agency, VMPA, the men that control the Broadway theaters and all the major theater uh, circuits. And they want more and more money from these performers. They're basically exploiting them for more. And Cora refuses, uh, becomes big news. She refuses to pay. She's a member of the White Rats, this um, vaudeville's actors union. And she refuses. She says, I don't need you. Um, not only is she very wealthy from performing, 
she has a, a very successful farm in Anadarko. My grandfather took care of her farm when she was gone. So my family had a lot of money secure in their farms. So Cora could afford to say, screw you. I'm not going to, I'm not putting up with this. And so her career is at an all time high. And then all of a sudden she's blacklisted from every major theater in the country. And she takes on these guys. She puts it in the newspaper. You know, if they want to fight, then they will have it. And she says, I'm going to prove I don't need, you know, some big theaters. And she comes to Oklahoma and performs at like every theater she can find in the state just to prove that she can still, you know, make some money. But that blacklist ends up evolving into Cora starting a uh, strike in Oklahoma City, or at least helping a strike in Oklahoma City and gets the white rats involved. And then she starts a strike in Tulsa and gets the white rats involved. And then she starts some lawsuits with the vaudeville managers in Oklahoma City and Tulsa because they refuse to allow these people to perform. And it's this agitation that sees Cora constantly blacklisted from everything. So she loses everything. She loses all the major theaters. She loses all the major engagements. Um, 1916 sees her performing at circuses. And then, like I said, all over Oklahoma. And then, of course, 1917, World War One breaks out and puts a pause to all of the, pro- the striking and whatnot. She even got arrested. That was something I found so fascinating was my grandmother had never mentioned the fact that she'd been arrested. And uh, my great aunt is still alive. She's like 98. And she she knew Cora as a little girl. So she's the only person I know that's still alive that knew Cora. But she had no idea. Cora and all of her girls got arrested multiple times, striking in Chicago. And uh, this uh, interview with Cora, she would, they'd get arrested. They'd go to the jail and they'd, you know, oh, I'm so sorry. And the judge said, well, don't do it again. And then as soon as they got let out, they'd go back and strike again. And so for the whole month, they kept getting arrested almost daily to the point where she said all the cops knew their names. And in fact, the cops started bringing them instruments in the jail so they could play for them. And then at the end of the month, a lot of the cops showed up to their performance in the theater. So her white rats period. Oh, and the other part of that is in Oklahoma, she's uh, appointed as the deputy director of the white rats in the state of Oklahoma. So she's the first woman to be given a leadership role in the white rats. So she just continuously breaking these boundaries and these first, but she's doing it in a way that she's standing up for herself, but it, it kind of kills her whole reputation. And at that point it's the transition over to Hollywood and film. And so she just gets lost in the waters because of her blacklist being with the white rats. It's just like Kunjus is like such good images of like you can just imagine like this group of girls in like a jail cell like playing cornets mm-hmm. trombones and the yeah. prisoners like yay more more I mean <laughs> unbelievable if you think about it yeah um, and she says it like they found an old cornet that's how it started and then more instruments showed up it's just wild when you think about it but <laughs> I wish I wish I'd been a fly on the wall honestly it's me too sounds like a great performance <laughs> a very intimate performance of nonetheless. So Cora is quite often seen in native dress for quite a lot of her performances. Do we understand more about why she did this? Because she wasn't Native American, correct? Right. So that's kind of the heart of my dissertation, just um, to follow the Native American idea. So as a backdrop, when I grew up, I lived in, uh, I was born in Ada, Oklahoma, the Chickasaw Nation. And so when I was three, my parents managed to get me into a program the Chickasaws had for education. And then when I moved to Collinsville, which is up near Tulsa, Oklahoma, my family had 
the the family story. Like we were part native somehow, part Cherokee. And man, I had grandparents that were card carrying members of the Western Cherokee and we were trying to figure it out. So I grew up just with the understanding as most people in Oklahoma do that you're part native. And to the point where I was in school, I was actually taking native cultural classes. Like I went to these classes in first grade and second grade to, you know, learn Cherokee, just something you did. And so my whole life, it was like, okay, whatever, we're part native, but we can't prove it. So whatever, we're not card carrying members. So it wasn't until I started my research in Decora that I started to learn that we're not at all. So I did like ancestry DNA and it came back a hundred percent white. I mean, it's a hundred percent Northern European. It's, it's British, Irish, Germanic, Scandinavian, a hundred percent white. And I told my family and they're like, no, there's no way. Your grandmother, which is my great grandmother, her last name was Youngblood and she got Indian checks till the day she died. She would grew up on an Indian reservation. I was like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But the DNA says no. So no one believed me. So then I started doing the Cora research. And that's when I realized it's these family stories that get morphed. And so, yes, my grandmother, her last name was Youngblood. Youngblood's a Germanic name. Uh, yes, she grew up on a reservation. She lived in Anadarko. Uh, yes, she got checks. They're mineral rights checks because of the land my family owned. The land they owned because they bought the first uh, homestead in 1901 when it opened to white settlement. So all of these things went back. So to Cora, I'm trying to deal with that uh, issue. If she, like me and the rest of the family, believe she was Native, then part of the argument is, for all intents and purposes, she's Native. You can't prove it at the time. And she lives in Anadarko. She does end up marrying the Native American man, uh, Charles Corson. And so for all intents and purposes, she might have fully believed she was Native. But she did start in vaudeville doing performances in native garb, which was the big thing at the time. That's the vanishing race. That's the the way popular culture is going. That's how native performers are performing. So she does that for a while. And then it evolves later in her career um, in the 20s where she's performing songs in the Caddo language with other performers. And she's in New York doing dances with other native performers and then she's in the Indian Reservation Band as Princess Youngblood uh, in full native garb, um, performing at the inaugurations of uh, Hoover and Roosevelt as part of a Native American band, kind of highlighting Native culture. So it is one of those weird iffy things, which is the whole point of my dissertation, is that in some of these cases, it's not a white person pretending to be a Native. It's something different, which is kind of like Oklahoma. It's something weirdly in the middle. And so she does she does perform a native garb, but it's not up to me or us to say what she thought or believed, because we don't know. And at the end of the day, the stuff she did was actually as a whole more advancing towards Native Americans at the time than you know, uh, harmful. So it's one of these really gray areas. I'm trying to figure out how do you just discuss that without pissing everybody off. Totally understand. I mean, we can't, there's no way we could possibly know what her intentions with that unless we had sort of letters or documents. But again, it's a gray area, like you say, and we have to bring the topic up to discuss it and learn from it. And that's the reason that I've asked that question today. What do you think is Cora's lasting legacy? Honestly, it's um, I think her lasting legacy is 
yet to be seen. I know she inspired a lot of women performers. I mean, even when she was the Anadarko band, she inspired Lawton to start a women's band. So you see these articles talk about um, other towns being inspired to create bands because they saw Cora perform. And then as she traveled the country, she always had women in her band. It was an all-women band. So she's bringing other women musicians to the stage and traveling the world and really pushing the envelope early on on what a woman should be able to do. You know, at a time that no woman should be playing the tuba, that's that's not a dainty instrument. And Cora says, screw you, I'm playing the tuba. I'm going to beat all of you at it. And she opens up those doors and these advertisements to push women to get into more brass instruments and... I think uh, her lasting legacy, even though people may not know her, they owe her and other women like Helen May Butler to push more, or really change the cultural ideas of what women can do in music. And I think her career and her fame is is a big part of that, that she's able to get an international image of a woman doing things no one wants her to. What's next in terms of research for you, James? You've been on a big journey. And uh, it's still ongoing. Finish the dissertation. That's the big one. Got to get it wrapped up this semester. Um, Once I'm done with the dissertation, the plan is cut out all the dissertation stuff and then write it as a book, as a biography of Cora's life so that we can actually get that out there. And so people can see all the amazing things she accomplished and all the things she did in, in her career. And then, you know, open the doors for more research onto women at this time. And hopefully uh, really get that discussion up and going. And then taking my whole collection and finding a good museum for it all. I was going to say there has to be somewhere where we can store all these fantastic items and documents that you've collected. So fingers crossed for the book. I can't wait. Where can people find out about you and your work, James? Uh, So if they want to know more about Cora, um, the International Tuba and Euphonium Association Journal has an article I wrote. Or they can go on YouTube and look up, just type in Cora Youngblood Corson. And the only video on there is my presentation at our Oklahoma History Conference, where I've got photos and, and more discussion there. So those are the only two places at the moment uh, that I've put out on Cora. But, you know, they can always reach out to me. Uh, like Now that I'm at LSU, my email's online. So just type in my name and type in LSU and you'll find me. James, thank you so much. It's just fascinating. It was actually Joanna Ross Hersey who had introduced me to Cora's work in a mm-hmm. previous episode. And it's just, like you say, opened up a whole new world of research into women performers, brass instrumentalists, and founders of brass bands at that time. So thanks again. It's been fantastic to have you on. Thank podcast. you for having me. If you like the podcast, please help it to grow by liking, sharing, rating and reviewing. You can also support the podcast by leaving a tip or buying a perk, including asking my next guest a question or getting a shout out via fan list. Link in the show notes. Podcast music is Mephistopheles, performed by the Illinois Brass Band.